From the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse in the Asbury Park of Pennsylvania, which is Grantham, this is the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome everyone to Episode 9 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Well, Drew... One episode left in our inaugural season of the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to be clear, two two more to go, including this one. We got one more after that. We'll finish out the month of May, but it's been a fabulous ride so far. Kind of exciting. Got through it by the seat of our pants at a couple moments, but um, I think we're, I'm pretty proud of what we've done. Yeah, I think we can call ourselves podcasters. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, I want to thank everyone who has listened this season. We are still finding our footing in the podcast world, but we're proud of the guests we've been able to attract and the conversations we've been able to have this season. Yeah, well, I mean, let's just go over the list of some of the people we've interviewed. The executive director of the American Historical Association, the Washington Bureau Chief of the Atlantic, an ESPN sports writer, a Pulitzer Prize winner and Jefferson biographer, the chief of education at the Air and Space Museum, and the world's foremost expert on historical thinking. I'd say that's a pretty good list. That is an all-star lineup. That's a dream team. Let's see if we can, uh, if we if we go another season. It's going to be tough to duplicate, but I think we can do it. You know, the other day I tweeted that we had one more episode left after this one, and then we were going to have a postseason meeting where we'll we'll both sit down and assess sort of the season, where we've been, and then consider another season. So we got a few nice tweets and retweets and responses from folks who did not like my use of the word consider when I talked about a- another season. So it's good to know that we are developing a fan base. It's good to know some people want us back for another season. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, we will hopefully make an announcement sometime this summer as to where we're heading. I think we have some thinking to do. I think we have some planning to do. Get some... Uh make the process a little bit smoother, but um, if the fans are there, then I guess we got to keep going. Let us know if you're out there. Of course, we want you uh, to be part of our growing fan base. We hope you'll head over to iTunes or thewayofimprovement.com to download episodes and subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends about us. Write a review at iTunes. Write a tweet. Promote us on Facebook crank us with the window open out of your car stereo system while you're stopped at a stoplight, Uh, whatever it takes to get the word out about what we're trying to do here at the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. We're trying to bring you good history conversation that comes, that that bears on our everyday life here uh, in the United States and beyond. So Drew, is it correct to assume that you have finished finished your first semester of college teaching? Uh, Almost, almost. So I have one more um, final to administer. I did a a split final because uh, the the slot I was given was the very last mathematical slot of uh, finals week at Messiah. So I I gave them the option to take it a little early if they were seniors hoping to get out of, uh, get out of town and, and head on their way or whatever. Um, so yeah, so I have one more final to administer, but um, I already have half of my blue books stacked up waiting to be graded. And I'm sure you have plenty of nightmares as your uh, sabbatical is winding down, knowing that pretty soon you'll be back to grading those piles of blue books. Yeah, that's 
If there was one thing about being a college professor I could get rid of, well, actually, I could think of more than one thing, but uh, grading blue books is is not fun. Yeah, I should add, um, you know, my wife has taught some college courses as well at Messiah, and and she has become a firm believer that she is uh, destined to be a middle school teacher. And one of the reasons she cites is she just can't, stomach the uh the grading of of these big college papers and things so. the, the infamous scantron right uh yeah you know listening to you talk i realize that my sabbatical's quickly coming to an end i'm getting i'm already getting pestered by the campus bookstore about textbooks i'm teaching a course on the american revolution in the fall it's only a matter of time before i'm back in the saddle so it's a, a little bit depressing here as we move through the month of may and the summer being on the horizon yeah actually I, you now that you bring up the american revolution course that was the first upper division course i took with you i think um yeah i think so in fact we i i think we I, no one would have ever caught us but i think we do have to meet make a, a small correction Back uh, in our first episode, you commented on my experience in your Colonial America class, and then I realized I actually never took that because you offered that the semester I was studying abroad. So um, I, I, I actually never took your Colonial America class, but I did take your American Revolution course. So, okay. Yeah, uh, the American Revolution course I haven't taught in a few years, but I'm looking, I'm looking forward to it. I'm working on a new project now on the American Revolution, so it'll be nice uh, to jump back into that and... Uh, I'm I'm still torn between how I'm going to teach it and what kind of text I'm going to use, but I need to make that decision soon because the bookstore is uh, harping on on me to get my textbooks in. Yeah, I'm reading reading a book right now for next semester as well for uh, for the textbook uh, for the same reason get the textbook store to get off my back. So let's talk about our episode today. I'll let you introduce the topic, Mister New Jersey. Yes, folks, that's right. Today is our long-awaited Bruce Springsteen episode. Anyone who reads the blog knows that I'm a huge Boss fan, so I was very excited when Mark Dolan, the author of what is the best biography on Springsteen that I have ever read, agreed to come on the show. Yeah, I'm very excited, too. I'm a Boss fan as well, but I know I can't, I can't keep up with you and your fandom. But before we get to that interview, what do you have for us today? take care of our own somewhere around 2009 or 2010 and I put it away in my book where's the promise from sea to shining sea where's the promise from sea to shining sea my work has always been about judging the distance between American reality and American dream how far is that at any, at any given moment I went to something akin to a Pentecostal revival meeting last month. It was held at the Bryce Jordan Center on the campus of Penn State University. There were tens of thousands of people in attendance. 
the preacher delivered a nearly four-hour message focused on hope, community, vocation, work, family, and a little bit of fun. He asked us if we were ready to be transformed. At one point, he asked if, quote, he could get a witness. He even took us down to the river and baptized us in the Spirit. The worship band, who came to State College from a place called East Street, channeled the Spirit through their music. The congregation danced and sang and raised their hands. I'm not sure if anyone was speaking in tongues, but they were speaking the language of rock and roll. And I am pretty sure that there was some healing, at least emotionally, going on as I participated from my spot in the pit. As a Christian, the use of such religious language to describe a Springsteen concert could border on the blasphemous. And for those who are concerned about the salvation of my soul, I want to let you know that the S in the word spirit is not capitalized in my transcript. But frankly, I have no other language to describe what happened at this concert, or for that matter, every Bruce Springsteen concert I have attended, especially in the last 10 years. Springsteen fans are like a congregation, a very welcoming congregation, who participate each night in a communal experience under the direction of a 66-year-old band leader. People come to Bruce Springsteen concerts because they are loyal, they love the music, and they want to feel human, even if it's just for a few hours. In an age when the humanities, the study of things that make us human, are under attack, and politicians mock the study of history, literature, philosophy, and the liberal arts, Springsteen and artists like him may be our best hope. His concerts explore things like democracy, tragedy, heartbreak, joy, hope, sin, work, love, beauty, virtue, justice, the things we are called to do on this earth, the longings we have to be free, and as he puts it, the gap between the American dream and the American reality. Thanks, John. This is an excellent lead-in to today's interview. Our guest today is Mark Dolan, Associate Professor of English at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City, and the coordinator of the American Studies Program at the City University of New York Graduate Center. He is the author of Bruce Springsteen and the Promise of Rock and Roll, which originally appeared in 2012 with W.W. Norton Press. Our guest today is Mark Dolan, uh, author of a great biography of Bruce Springsteen entitled Bruce Springsteen and the Promise of Rock and Roll. Mark, welcome to the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking. Well, I'm going to jump in here with the first question, Mark. Um, well, we're, we're all Bruce Springsteen fans here, but I was just wondering how you first discovered the music of the boss. Well, there's a short answer and a long answer. 
The short answer is I grew up in New Jersey in the 1970s. So just like you, John. <laughs> Where in Jersey? I, at Jersey City. Um, so in that sense, I didn't have a choice. But the funny thing is I didn't really listen to that much rock and roll in high school. Um, I wrote musicals and I was very into uh, show music and folk music. But you could not go to high school in New Jersey in the 1970s and avoid just phrase after phrase drawn from Springsteen's songs. And as I slowly got my feet wet in his work, I realized he was describing the world I was growing up in. And, and to this day, there are images off of those albums in the 70s. It's like, I know where that is. I know where that highway is. I know where that sign is, etc. Um, so I, I came into it even though rock wasn't my genre. It just it described the world I knew. And what about uh, the decision to write the biography then? I mean, this looks like, is this your first, was this your first book or had you done something, you'd done something previous? The first book is a very academic book that I wrote to get tenure. Right. And I had been noodling around with something else. And I was looking at Springsteen stuff online and I noticed he had done three concerts in the space of five days that had almost entirely different groups of songs. And, oh no, excuse me, actually before that, the first thing I ever wrote about Bruce Springsteen that I could not finish, and I put it down for five years, was I went to one of the Madison Square Garden shows during the reunion tour in 2000, and I saw uh, 41 Shots, American Skin, performed. And I thought it was one of the most extraordinary things I had ever seen in terms of audience reaction. That and it's exactly the scene as I describe it in the later chapter of the book. He um, he moved the set list around and did my hometown, and he held out the microphone to the audience, and they all sang along. And then he whiplashed, went right into Forty One Shots, yeah. and the audience all pulled back. Now, I know a lot of performers. You can have that effect on 50 people or 100 people in a room. When you have the effect on 5,000 people in an arena, right. it's an amazing thing. And I came back home that night and I sat down at my computer and I started an essay called Bruce Springsteen Has a Problem with His Audience. <laughs> and I got about 200 words into it. and Actually, 500 words into it. I couldn't finish it. Um, and then five years later – he is doing benefit shows for his kids' school. He's doing um, the Golden Globes, and he's doing um, the Storytellers uh, thing he did just before the Devils and Dust tour. And those three things got me thinking about the various sides of Bruce. So I started what I thought was going to be a short essay. It ended up being the introduction that isn't in this book <laughs> because yeah. I just kept going and going and going. And, you know, I think if you... If you've ever had this happen with your scholarship, there are always things you're kind of interested in, but there's a moment when you switch into scholarly mode. Right. And what had been a hobby became scholarship in that I had to be exhaustive. And I started looking at albums that I had never really gotten into before. Right, right. And that's when you start going to detail and like, okay, what was he doing during this period? That year, I didn't get what he was doing. What was going on there? And it, it, it began with the relationship with the audience, because the relationship with the audience to me is the key of his career. He has a very complex relationship with his audience uh, where they each test each other back and forth. They still do. 
And what I hadn't even thought about at the time that became more and more important the more I researched was the European audience, which is almost entirely different from the U.S. audience in terms of their right. reactions, right. their triggers, etc. Um, when I pitched the book to the publisher, one of the things I stressed was that I wanted to talk about stuff after the 80s because most stories of Bruce just assume he peaks with Born in the USA and it's all downhill from there. And I knew I wanted to talk about the 90s. And then at the exact moment I started writing about him, he ended up having the next five years of his life were the most productive he's ever had. Yeah. Because I think he's trying to kill me. Uh, <laughs> but no, it's like he's just been issuing an album, two albums every year. It's like, right, stop. Right, I right. can't catch up. But what's interesting is you talk to people in Europe. In other words, I've, uh, I did some readings in, in the UK and in Ireland. And I did some radio interviews. When you talk to people in Europe, 1985 is when they start becoming aware of Bruce. And so everything that happens in the 90s to them is the middle of his career. Sure. Whereas for many fans in the audience to this day at Springsteen shows in the U.S., they would rather hear um, songs from the 70s. Right. So you have people who like different periods of his work. You have people of different ages. You have people of different political persuasions. You have people who like the dopey little songs. And there are people who want the intense, grinding fact of the working man songs. And the amazing yeah. thing about him, and I'll use the word as an intellectual, is that he combines all these things in a single show. Right. Uh, that there's something there for every audience. And I have kidded um, – there are some things I can't stand that he does on a semi-regular basis. And when other people have talked to me about it, I've said, well, that's not for me. That's for the guy two rows down from me. Mm -hmm. um, I mean the, 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 the constant one that I just simply can't stand is out in the street. Um, okay. I'm 54 years old. When I see somebody older than me, you know, I'll walk the way I want to walk and this guy probably has owned his own business for 20, 30 years. Like, no, you're not a teenager anymore. Um, also the thing he did on the last tour, which he's not doing now of having a kid, some come up and sing waiting on a sunny day. Right. Right. Which we had an online campaign to ban that. I'm happy to see on the most recent tour. He's <laughs> not doing that. That's what got my, that's what got my kids interested in the show though. You know, they love that part. That's my point yeah. is that, you know, so many artists, dare we say so many politicians play to one audience. Or they do something so bland that it's one size fits all. Um, but the amazing thing about Springsteen is he will play, to, you know, he's got country fans. He's got folk fans. Right. He's got fans who think he still looks good in a pair of jeans. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, it, he's playing to all of them at once and he's trying to bring them together in a common experience. That one scene, that one, that one scene in the book that you described, that you started out answering this question with, the, the, that transition from um, my hometown to uh, Forty One Shots was just such a powerful part of the book. Is that the part? I'm trying to remember. Is that the part where, uh, you know, there was a sort of New York City policeman who was kind of drawn drawn into my hometown, and then as soon as he transitioned, he sort of crossed his arms, right? Yeah, exactly. That, by the way. That's the one event – I very seldom mention my own presence in scenes in the book. Some of the concerts I was at, some of the concerts I watched on video. But that was that was the night I first wrote about it, Yeah, was Did seeing that, that. Do you know, is that is that 
concert on, can you see that on YouTube? Is that available, that transition? Because I want to go back and look at it. I don't think so. And the thing is, the last two or three concerts in Madison, I think it was a 10 concert stand. Um, the last two or three concerts were chopped up and put together to make the live in New York City album. Okay. And, and um, I think maybe the TV special as well for HBO. Okay. But, um, no, that transition isn't there. And, in fact, on the released concert version, not only do they not use that take, the DVD of it, but they also move it out of sequence so you okay. don't have it coming along at that exact moment to okay. sort of break people off. That's too bad. Let's talk a little bit about the book, the subtitle of the book. You've probably been asked this now dozens of times, but tell me about uh, the promise of rock and roll. And please tell me that this has something to do with uh, one of my favorite Bruce songs, The Promise. Well, it's, in my use of it, they're not, but in some ways okay. it's an earlier, it's an earlier iteration. Um, the song, The Promise, let me start with that and get to my title. Right. The song The Promise is a very strange little moment in Bruce's career. Um, frequently, I say that his albums are journeys from one song to another, a song he writes at the beginning of the process and a song he writes at the end of the process. Um, the Promise was written in the wake of Born to Run. Um, and I go through in the book that he was performing live at that point. He was doing a tour to make money because he couldn't get royalties in the record because of a problem with his manager. And the song changed from night to night while he was giving depositions in the case against his manager. Right. So it's very much tied up in that moment. Um, some people have claimed that it, it was tied into his reading Royal Marcus's uh, mystery train around that time, which is one of the first serious books written about rock and roll. Mm -hmm. And, I think that link may be part of it because of the fact that there's a great moment in the intro to Marcus's book where he describes little Richard on a talk show saying, uh, talking about the theme of his life being he got what he wanted, but he lost what he had. Okay. And that is the theme of the promise right. that you could get to the point of success. Um, and that success can seem empty. It's not what you wanted, particularly how you got there. Um, I find it remarkable that Springsteen's psyche was such that he went into a depression when he became a big success. Mm -hmm. And this is him, you know, in his 20s. Um, that's the moment in 1975, 1976. Um, he took some of the early criticism very personally. Um, my reference to The Promise actually goes forward to 2008. Okay. Where um, he was, uh, he was uh, doing bits for Barack Obama, right? Uh, performing acoustically in um, Philadelphia, and he had you know a set stump speech or you know rap between songs that he was doing in all the locations, and uh, it very much connects with a speech that Obama had given, which I use as one of my epigraphs in the book, at the Constitution Center in Philadelphia a few weeks right. before. Uh, it's called a more perfect union. It's the idea that we are always trying to perfect what the United States could be, but we're not quite there yet. Um, and uh, Springsteen said during this performance, I've spent most of my creative life measuring the distance between the American promise and American reality. Right. 
Um, and he then said, I believe Senator Obama has taken the measure of that distance in his own life and in his work. The, to me, the key to Springsteen is that uh, people who misperceive him think he's rah-rah, everything's perfect. And there is a fatalistic realism to the way things are, but there is a dream of how it could be. Um, and it's, as he says of Obama, but it's as true of him, measuring the distance between those two things, that you keep both ideas in your mind at the same time. Now, as far as the title of the book's concerned, um, it's interesting. This was, what ended up being the title was a negotiation between myself and my editors um, mm. because my original title, which they're right, never would have sold. But on my manuscript, it was called Making It Talk, Bruce Springsteen and the Language of Rock and Roll okay. because that's what the book is to me. Right. Their marketing department came back with Bruce Springsteen, The Promise Fulfilled. And I said, no, 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 no. The promise is never fulfilled. That's the point of the promise. <laughs> um, so we ended up with this um, because the first words of the book are rock and roll and the last words of the book are rock and roll, which was on purpose. Okay. Um, so in this case, we can talk about all that rock and roll can be in addition to all the United States can be, but measuring it up against what actually it is. Okay, yeah, and that's great. And it's important to nice whole but to measure the distance. Absolutely. Yeah. That was such a powerful comment that he made that, that sort of distance between the American dream and American reality. Now let's go back to 1969. You actually, this, this is the first, this is actually the first sort of, uh, biography of a musician that I've ever seen that actually contains a map there's a map at the beginning of the book showing Bruce Springsteen. It's titled Bruce Springsteen's New Jersey, comma, 1969. Tell me a little bit about Springsteen as a Jersey artist writing. I think you, you use the phrase uh, something similar to sort of he's writing. He's not a New York artist. He's writing from the periphery, uh, performing from the periphery. Tell me a little bit more about that. Um, well, another great Jersey artist, the novelist Juno Diaz. Mm -hmm. has talked about the difference between being from a somewhere and being from an elsewhere. And Diaz speaks of New Jersey, not many people have taken this quote to just talk about being Dominican American, but he also is talking about being Jersey American, that Jersey in his mind is an elsewhere. It's not the destination. It's the place that's looking at the destination. And what that gives you is perspective. Um, at one point, I go through a litany of all of the people who are involved as the main figures in punk and the origins of punk. And right. they're all thought of as New York artists, but none of them were born in Manhattan. They're all what would be called Bridge and Tunnel, because there's something about that proximity to the destination, but still seeing it from a distance. And that gives you perspective. That allows you to see things. That allows you, you know, to see the distance but also to see what is and isn't there, what's complete. You don't take the purity of the destination for granted because you see all the other things that fall by the wayside. Um, You're more likely to see imperfection. You're more likely to see detail. Um, So how does this play out in Springsteen? Well, in other words, um, he spent, most of his later high school years trying to avoid um, being in New Jersey. 
he was constantly driving or taking the bus up to Manhattan, just hanging out in Manhattan and going to concerts. He famously skipped his own high school graduation. Mm-hmm. Um, and his dad made him go back and get the diploma. But because he wanted to be in Manhattan. Um, if you're trying to make your own sound, um, you you look for things that can be combined. You basically look for uh, the leftovers that can be combined together. Now, that's the beginning of it, but then you have Asbury Park, and Asbury Park is is a unique music scene in the history of rock and roll in that it only has really one moment, which is this exact time in the late 60s, early 70s, where pretty much the, this, the town has been written off by everybody who isn't local. But for the kids who are local, this abandoned place is a destination, and it's a place um, where... You can jam all Saturday night and sleep under the boardwalk on Sunday. Right. Uh, it's a place where literally in the upstage, the club that I talk about, that they, where they were, it was a true meritocracy to the point where race didn't matter. And for race not to matter in Monmouth County, let alone all of New Jersey in 1970, was a remarkable thing. They didn't care if you were black or white. The point was, could you play? Right. And so uh, there are these people who gather together, Springsteen, Van Zandt, most of the early band, who are the freaks, who you know might not get served at politer diners in the neighborhood, um, but who come together out of a sense of this is our place. And again, we take the leftovers. We can play any kind of music and we can combine it in ways that you can't imagine. Now, that's very different from the sort of classicism of what was reigning in rock and roll at that point, which was, you know, prog rock and the idea that there is a level of education you need to have, the sort of references you need to have. There's a level even of musicianship you need to have as opposed to just raw grinding talent. Yeah. Uh, which is not a virtuoso talent. It's just a ambitious talent. Um, so being on the fringes, being left behind, being considered less than important uh, is obviously the origin of punk. Um, you know, it's, it's written all over punk, but in that same stew comes out the Asbury Park sound, comes out Bruce Springsteen. Um, and of course, the problem with that is the problem with a lot of, you know, movements up from the underground is what do you do when you become successful? Right, right. No, I mean, that's, that's you know, as, as someone born and raised in Jersey who's not a musician, I can also relate to some of that. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about Springsteen and politics. Um, okay. The, uh, as I read your book, and there's this, there's this transformation, maybe not transformation, a sort of change over time, we historians like to say. Uh, much of his early music you talk about as being sort of very individualistic. Um, and then, you know, there's this famous kind of uh, moment, this George Will moment, which I'm going to ask you to talk about, where Springsteen, or at least you suggest that much of the sort of individualism, the freedom, if you will, that defines the Reagan era, and of course, uh, most of the Springsteen fans know about sort of Reagan co-opting the song on that visit to Hamilton uh, during the 84 campaign. But there's a there's Springs. You, you make this great point where you're saying, you know, well, Reagan Springsteen's resisting Reagan's, uh, you know, co-opting of his stuff. But Springsteen, in some ways, is very much doing the exact same thing. 
Um, and then as you move on, uh, you know, he becomes it's not till later in his career that he gets this more collectivist or communal kind of voice. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. I mean, I'll let me speak about Springsteen before George Will first. Sure. And then sure. I'll get to George Will. Um, his parents, the Matrix in which he's raised, um, is very what I would call New Deal Democrat. Right. Um, at one point, not in the book, but an article I wrote, I referred to it as Union Hole uh, de- Democrat. That, in other words, unions are great, working class people are great, um, getting benefits based on that kind of, not really socialism, communism, but as you say, collectivism. Yeah. Um, collective bargaining, things like that, that all of those are good things. It's not an articulated politics. It's just something you grow up with, that this is what makes the world good when these things happen. Um, And the distinction I make in the book that I would make again here, which I think is one that often gets lost, is the distinction between ideology and politics. Because Springsteen, until 1984, did not have a political bone in his body. Um, he wrote a truly dreadful anti-war song in the late 60s. I mean, it's, I, I, I have it on a recording. I would not subject anyone else to it. Um, <laughs> it, it was, it, it, it's a dreadful song. It was him trying to write an explicitly political song in, in his teenage years, and he just couldn't do it. Um, he played a, um, a benefit acoustic benefit concert for McGovern in 72 at a drive-in in, I believe, Red Bank. I'd have to check that. I think that's those right. Are the only yeah. two politi- those are the only two political acts he, he, he ever, ever had. As far as issues he voiced on, I think he thought war was bad. He didn't want to get drafted. But as far as what we should do in terms of foreign policy and the, and the domino theory and, you know, what about Indochina? Uh, he didn't have thoughts like that. He didn't have thoughts about tax policy. He didn't have thoughts about the ERA. Uh, he was apolitical. The most striking thing for me that people like to gloss over is that, yes, he played the No Nukes concert. He played it because I think he thought, you know, there were some issues there, but he wasn't articulate about them. If you listen to every performer who played the No Nukes concerts, all of them made some statement from the stage about the issue at hand, not Springsteen. Beyond that, he had a wonderful song for the river called Roulette, right. which is about a father trying to protect his family after Three Mile Island. He didn't perform it live. Any place you were going to perform that song live, it was a yeah, no nits sure. concert because it's relevant. Instead, he performed the river, which is more mythic. And archetypal. Um, so he really didn't have political bone in his body. He had ideology, which all of us do. We have our vision of the way the world should be and the way it is. And his issue, if you listen to most of his songs, is he doesn't trust structures. He doesn't trust institutions. He doesn't trust anything that holds down individual movement. I'm not going so far as to say he was an Ayn Rand fan, but his main issue was institutions should get out of my way. If you look at um, Ronald Reagan's speeches, particularly in the 84 campaign, 
This is Reagan's biggest issue. That, in other words, we need to get government off people's backs so they can achieve. Now, the other context to put all this in before I get to George Will is the Reagan campaign, right. uh, particularly looking at our contemporary political state. One has to marvel in retrospect, whatever one's politics are, at how brilliantly organized the 1984 Reagan campaign was. In January of 1984, um, Reagan's campaign decided that the people who were going to vote for the president already, the people who had voted for him in 1980, would continue to, and they don't need to need to play to them. So what they needed to do is to pull in more of the moderates. Um, and uh, many statements were made about running an optimistic campaign, running about an inclusive campaign, really running on the idea, it's not just Springsteen, that they should be able to co-opt anything, that it's not about opposing various movements, it's about pulling them in. Um, one of the most striking quotations was one of the advisors at this campaign session in January said, you know, if we allow the other party to seize hope, we've lost the election. So Reagan was going to be hopeful. Reagan was going to be inclusive. We're not talking policies. We're talking campaigning. Um, if you look at his speech at the, uh, accepting the nomination at the convention that year, he's got all ethnic groups. He's got a guy in a wheelchair. He's got an immigrant from Vietnam. It's the idea is all of us are America. We're all part of this tent. Um, so George Will, um, and the, the, the full story of this is hysterically funny. His original column of people look it up is very funny because he talks about the fact that he may have smelled marijuana uh, right, backstage right. <laughs> and that, and that everybody was a little too androgynous for his taste. If you know, yeah, yeah, God help him if he checked out the the, the, the Prince tour that year. Um, but that he said that you know this is an example of hard work, and if we're worried about American exports, this is an export that's fun, export that's fun. Um, Will was invited there by um, Max Weinberg and his wife, right. uh, who had liked him on Sunday morning shows. Uh, he wore the bow tie. He had earplugs in. Um, I think he liked the fact that everybody seemed to be having a good time. That was also, I believe, the peak of Bruce's um, weightlifting yeah. or, you know, uh, training. So he, he he will even has a comment about how the whole backstage area smells like Ben Gay. That's right. Um, so I think he liked that it was so positive. And I think that positivism was what fed into the campaign. Um the fact was, Will, as I understand it, was the one that suggested that the Reagan campaign uh, bring this in because Will was an off-the-books advisor for the Reagan campaign. Um, and his column, he saw the concert earlier in the year, but his column was held until just before Reagan campaigned in New Jersey. Um, now, really, all this starts with a drop-in comment. Um in other words, you have the standard stump speech when you're touring. And yes, I actually read, I think it was 30 Reagan stump speeches from the fall of 1984 because okay. I wanted to see how the Hammond, uh, the, the one in New Jersey fit into the rest of them. Um, you have a standard speech and you drop in and maybe you drop in that somebody has their 100th birthday or maybe you drop in that the Little League team just won a championship or something. It's all these local comments. And so there's a drop in there that you said, you know, 
uh, young people see, you know, hope in the face of New Jersey's own brings Bruce Springsteen. Right. And, you know, the reporters go to Springsteen and ask him for a comment. And he tries to laugh it off. I mean, he just, you know, he doesn't know. Um, because Springsteen at that point had the biggest tour in the country. Uh, reporters kept asking him. Yeah. And it actually bugged him. Uh, um, he had made some comments the night Reagan got elected in 1980. Um, but they're very vague. And they, yeah, they that was Tempe, the Tempe Arizona, right? Yeah. Tempe, Arizona. Yeah. And he, other people think those are stronger anti-Reagan content. He says he's worried. He doesn't specify why he's worried. Right. And there are elements in that, what he said in Tempe in 1980, that fit in with a Reagan rhetoric. But this bugs him that he's being directly associated with. Um, and basically, I think this is the moment of Bruce Springsteen's political awakening. Because I honestly do not think that until that moment in the fall of 1984, he ever wondered what he would like his government to be like. He basically knew he wanted it off their, his, his back and off the backs of people he cared about. But um, he up to the point, you know, not only when Will saw the concert earlier in the year, but up to the point that um, that incident happened with Reagan dropping his name, he was still doing a speech at the, at the end of Born to Run that was talking about, you know, let freedom ring. And he was talking about individual liberty and people right. having unbounded opportunity. It's the same thing as Reagan. Yeah. Now, the fact was he didn't agree with Reagan, but he had never articulated his politics. And I think in this regard, I think what's fascinating about this, it goes forward to the shut up and sing uh, comments that happened in 2004 against the Dixie Chicks, against Springsteen, etc., is that I don't think most people in a society have an articulated politics, which is one of the reasons why if you do polling on specific issues, the way that you frame it is how people sure. respond. Sure. I don't think most people in this country are across the board liberals or across the board conservatives. I think we understand a lot of policy in terms of personal incident and anecdote. Um, I think we think about the implications on people we know. Most people in our society do not have a theoretical idea of what they think politically. Interesting. They think, no, that, that, yeah. I think, of, I think of, of relatives I have. And you know, that's one of the reasons why my hometown is an interesting song in that most of what most citizens understand about politics is what's going to affect what's around them. Let me let me jump in here. So Springsteen makes a transition, which you're saying occurs in this 1984. You're arguing this. Uh, he trans. You know, tell me just very briefly. Is this then the beginning of his um, political activism? Maybe you call. It? I mean, is this the is this the source then of? You know, it's not really until 2004, right, that he actually gets behind a candidate. But is it, yeah, is this the roots, though, of, you know, you know, let's just let's just be very recent. Right. Springsteen sort of canceling the concert in North Carolina or, you know, or Springsteen, uh, as you mentioned earlier, talking about Barack, you know, stumping for Barack Obama. I think I think it, it is the beginning. And it's interesting to see the fumbling first steps that move toward what we have now. Right. In that. 
Um, he actually was part of a, a union um, led theater project in um, L.A. in the next year. I think it was during 85. He started trying to get active to keep a 3M plant um, in Jersey open. Um, ironically, it was the rise of the CD that was doing in magnetic tape. Right. Um, rather than just singing about factories closing, he's trying to stop factories from closing. The most visible thing, which started in the fall of 1984 and goes on to this day, is he made um, sure that there were local charities, particularly local food banks, um, at every one of his concerts from then on, he would contact, and this is very, very Bruce. Yeah. He would find out what local agencies there were and bring them in. Yeah. Never for a second did he consider, I'm going to have a party here, or I'm going to have the Red Cross here, or I'm going to have the National Coalition for the Homeless here. It's like, no, who's getting food to people in this city who don't have homes? Right. Right. Uh, most striking, he was back in Arizona the night Reagan got elected. And that night, what he actually um, was speaking about from the stage was um, a strike fund, I believe, for, for medical care uh, for local workers who were, who, who were locked out of their jobs. And so his impulse is the local. He really yeah. doesn't trust the institutions, but that doesn't mean that people should be left to their own devices. Um, and indeed, before he does anything national, the next prominent time we see him with a political cause is in 1995 when he's try- he does some rallies to try to stop anti-immigrant laws in California, where he was living for most of the 90s. Yeah, so, so I get the impression as I, read, as I read your book, though, and tell me if I, this, is a fair, this is fair, that most of the time Springsteen tries to dabble in politics, he is really ineffective. At least that's the impression that I get. Now, again, we don't know what the local implications are of his food bank work and so forth. But, you know, you mentioned that 2004 Shut Up and Sing. Now, for those of you who don't know Springsteen, uh, that was, that was you know, he started making a political speech and someone yelled out, you know, shut up and sing. You know, we just want to hear the music sort of thing and we don't care about the politics. It, but is it a fair is that a fair assessment that, you know, people love the music, right? They, they, they want, they just, they're, they're attracted to, to the, they want to be entertained. And that's when he gets into politics, uh, you know, people, it's distasteful to people. Is that fair? I, I think I, again, I think he's successful on the level of ideology. I don't think he's successful okay. on the level of politics all the time, which is he does paint a vision of what a good society will be like. And I think a lot of his audiences that I know believe in that vision. Um, Some people are still stuck in the, I'm a teenager and just got in my face, man, which as I've said before is pathetic if you're in your fifties. Right. But, um, you know, I think one of the most striking things, and I talk about this later in the book is Obama because You know, Obama is a Springsteen fan, and you can actually tell this by the comments he's made. He knows the albums deep. And remember, he knows he encounters Springsteen when he's in high school um, long before he ever encounters the historically black church. Um, So Springsteen is more deeply rooted in his being. His vision, that's the most remarkable thing about 2008 to me, is Springsteen and Obama in a loop in terms of the worldview that 
that idea that the community has to come together and that people have to come together collectively and nobody wins unless everybody wins. Right. Um, and I know of cases in the U.S. I know of cases um, also in, in, in the U.K. and I, in Ireland, particularly the U.K., where he has awakened people's consciousnesses to the extent that they now do things locally. Now, presidential politics, it may be too much. I mean, I do think, as I say in the book, uh, from what I understand about some of the data, he did turn a couple of votes in the primaries in 08 by getting behind him early. In 04, he got behind Kerry relatively late. And... Um, I think you know, by that point, the effect he could have was not as large as it could have been. But I think he, this is what he thinks now, is that, in other words, he can bring attention to issues, probably more with issues than with particular candidates. And he has said, he even said in like 2012, that, you know, you can do this a limited amount of time. You have a limited amount of political capital to sway people. And after that, people don't listen to you. Sure. One one more question for you, Mark, because our time's just about getting up. Um, I don't know if you picked this up or, or not, but probably not. But as you as our listeners know, the way of our podcast or the the podcast name is the way of improvement leads home. And in a lot of my own work and scholarship, uh, actually, I'm an early American historian, but I write about the tensions between uh, ambition improvement, uh, the enlightenment, progress, and rootedness. You know, that tension that's uh, I'm sure you find a lot in American literature. In fact, I know you do. Um, another theme in your book is Springsteen's constant search for, for a home, a family, uh, a sense of rootedness. Even in the, the recent River Tour, you know, as he starts uh, playing the album, he, he's been talking about this, that, that uh, the, the river was an album that helped him uh, in his search for for these kinds of uh, permanent things, talk about this tension, this this ambition, this quest for fame, uh, success, and so forth. But it's always, as I read your book, it's always balanced with this sort of searching for uh, connections, home, rootedness, these kinds of things. Well, he, you know, he said in the nineties that the two most important days of his life were the day he picked up a guitar and the day he learned to put it down. Yeah. And I think each of those days is one of those two poles you're talking about. That this is a kid who mumbled and the guitar was the one thing he knew how to do. He was great at it almost from the moment he picked it up and then he got even better. So there is this ambition, this personal ambition to be noticed really in so many ways to be heard. Yeah. And he is just a pure engine of ambition. And people who saw him, you know, at the age of 16 in the upstate said they never saw anybody that they were so certain was going to make it big because he was just so determined and he worked so hard at it. Um, go forward to 1980 and with the river, he has his first number one album. He has his first top 10 single, Hungry Heart. Right. And as at the end of that tour, once he stops touring, he's doing three and a half hour shows, four hour shows. Um, when he stops touring, he goes back to New Jersey and he realizes that he doesn't have a home and, and he, he can't commit to buying a place. Right. And he keeps going back to the house, one of the houses he grew up in. 
and just driving there at night and staring at it. And so the fulfillment of ambition isn't enough. Um, he wants the idea of a home before he actually knows what it means. He wants the idea of a marriage and children before he really knows what it means. Um, his first marriage does not go well, and he admits that uh, that is as much on him as it is on anyone. But in his marriage to Patty Scalfa, he actually worked hard at building a home and the way in which that requires oneself to be open. And that branches out to a community where one must be open to other people and other people's needs and other people's thoughts and other people's desires. Um, he speaks very amusingly and movingly about how it used to be before he had a family that if he had an idea for a song, he would have to stop and sit down and write that song and work out that song no matter what, which is probably why a lot of his relationships in the 70s didn't go that well. Right. Um, now he says, you know, if he's going to pick up the groceries, he'll write it when he gets back. And there's that kind of balance, um, which I think is, is just quite touching and quite real. I mean, I think he is lucky to have gotten so successful so young so that he could figure out what was really important to him beyond success. Sure. So, and that is home and that is family. And that yeah. is, you know, definitely loves his children. Um, but, uh, you know, it really comes out of having been successful and realizing that wasn't enough. Yeah. So, so I think it's, I think it's fair to say then, and this might be a nice way to end the interview that indeed Bruce Springsteen's way of improvement has led him home. We have been talking with Mark Dolan. Go out and get this book. Uh, even if you're not a Springsteen fan, it's a wonderful reflection on American culture, American politics in the 70s, 80s, and beyond. Bruce Springsteen and the Promise of Rock and Roll. It came out in 2012. Uh, I believe, Mark, right, there's a paperback edition which has an additional chapter that came out a year later. So if you want to follow the story, uh, by all means, I've read a lot of Springsteen stuff. This is, without a doubt, I agree with Douglas Brinkley on the back of the book, best book on Bruce ever written. So uh, thanks for joining us. We appreciate you taking the time. And uh, what are you working on now, by the way? Uh, I'm superstitious. If I talk about it, it goes away. Fair enough. Fair enough. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much for having me. Well, Drew, another great interview, and I'm particularly proud of myself for getting Dolan to admit that in Bruce's life, the way of improvement has led him home. You know, one of the things that I really appreciate about Dolan's writing is he understands that Springsteen's real message comes not from his albums as much as from his concerts. I think, you know, I've read a lot of stuff on Bruce, both popular stuff and scholarly stuff. This is the first piece of writing, I think, that actually explores the set lists and the way that Bruce organizes his songs and has organized his songs in order to tell the story he wants to tell on that particular night. So Dolan's work, if you read it, I highly recommend it, of course. It doesn't read like a scholarly biography, but it is deeply scholarly uh, in its research. A lot of work went into this book, and that makes it so rich. I think it's actually a lot better 
uh, than Peter Carlin's book. Peter Carlin, who wrote a much more popular and less scholarly biography. Unfortunately, both of these books came out at the same time. And since Carlin had a little bit more cachet in the rock critics world, I'm a little bit worried that perhaps more people have read his book instead of Dolan's. Uh, but clearly, Dolan's is a much deeper and richer book for those who really want to dive into the social and cultural and political world uh, that Bruce Springsteen has inhabited for the last 40 years. That's really interesting that you bring that up, uh, the way you're discussing historical methods in a way, the, the way uh, Bruce's work is treated as an archive. And uh, I, I, you know, as a historian, that's... I, I, you know, I have approached other subjects with such creativity, but that's not necessarily a way I would have approached Springsteen's work. But then again, while I, I certainly own quite a few uh, Springsteen LPs, I, I myself have never seen him live. So I think maybe that's a, as a producer of your podcast, it's something I might have to do as a homework assignment. Definitely, Drew. Drew. You have to get out there and see him live. I'm, I'm shocked. Um, you know, it, it's something you got to do. It's You got to put it on your bucket list. I, I think I might have just heard the most disappointment in your voice after anything I've ever said. When I said I hadn't seen Bruce live. <laughs> I, you know, it, it would be like akin to me turning in a paper that was, you know, plagiarized or something. Like, you're so sad. Drew, I'm so disappointed in you. <laughs> you know, I wish I could have spent more time chatting with Dolan. I hope that uh, we didn't get too caught up during the interview in Inside Baseball about Springsteen's career in music. I hope that we gave uh, enough. I hope this episode, at least, has given the non-Springsteen fan or the casual Springsteen fan who may not know some of the history and the background, some information. But I hope we also said some things that are uh, worthwhile uh, to the hardcore fan. So we're going to try to promote this episode to both both audiences through our social media networks. So um, with that in mind, I guess it's time to wrap things up. Yep, that's a wrap. Another great show. I hope you enjoyed talking Bruce with us today. Perhaps we inspired you to go out and see him on tour or at least pull out that dusty Born to Run LP or CD and pop it into the car stereo, assuming it's a CD, uh, or download it onto your iPhone. We hope you'll join us in two weeks for our next episode, the last of the spring 2016 season. But in the meantime, may your way of improvement always lead home. been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes so others may more easily find this podcast. The podcast was recorded at the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse. Many thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. We also want to thank our guest, Mark Dolan. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermeling, and your host is John Fia.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.